Hey everyone! Welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when you do the next best thing. I am really excited to share this week's guest with you all because the work she's doing is really unique, and hers is definitely a story I haven't heard through these conversations. My guest this week is Sika Brown, who is the founder of YLG Research, and her mission is to explore the state and definition of mental health across different countries. When I found Sika's website and her story, I saw that her bio for herself included, not here to help, here to listen. And I really want to know more, and I wanted to share her story with you all. So, without further ado, let's get started with this episode featuring Sika Brown. For sure, yeah. Okay, so my name is Sika Brown. I am a 19-year-old activist and researcher. So I currently run and have been running this research initiative the past year and a half now, where I research how mental health is defined across cultures and backgrounds. The basis of it is just conversation. It's to hear people's stories, people's backgrounds. So that's with the YLG project, the Youth Lead Global Research Project. Um, it's kind of having youth leaders as researchers and kind of like kind of going into this new field as kind of young adults as researchers instead of having like much an older perspective. So it's been really cool. I've been doing a lot of work in mental health ever since I was 15. So from like 15 to 18 years old, I was doing a lot of work in policy change. I worked up in the Washington state legislature. I worked, worked in two legislation sessions, passing one bill in 2019. And then when I entered college, I was kind of like, mm, okay, policy, super dope, super needed. It's super hard to be genuine. And I'm a very genuine, like, I feel like that's, that's kind of like my motto is to be the most genuine person I can be through capturing people's stories. So now then I switch into this research perspective where, again, I've been interviewing people from about 15 different countries so far of just how do you experience and feel and define mental health? And it's such an individual and cultural difference. So um, that's been the work that I've been doing this past year and a half. That was a great introduction. And I'm really excited to have you on the show, Sika. So... You talked about it a little bit already, but I would love to know more about your background and what led you to get involved with mental health research and advocacy. Can you tell me some about the experiences you've had or some of the challenges you've faced to get you to this point today? Yeah, I think I, I always love that because it's always like I was so young when I started. I was a sophomore in high school. I was 15 years old. I'm 19 now. And I had no knowledge, no idea of how to like do anything. So it all started from a mental health. Like, so I took a psychology project in my, um, in my, in my school, my, my sophomore year. And we had to do like the psychology project. It was like, find a problem in the high school, present a solution type thing. And I was like, mental health, right? We're going to have better like resources. Moral, like long story short, uh, my school was like, that's a dumb idea. And as a 15 year old student, I was like, you suck. So I'm going to go to your boss, the superintendent of the school district. So it, just, it became this big thing where I went from wanting a, like a high school club to getting a policy done in my school district, which ended up leading me to state legislators because my, my psychology teacher was like, I think this is a super important like cause that you're working on, but you can't just walk into the office of the superintendent. Like you can't just walk in there. And so I had to reach out to a bunch of professionals in the field. So I reached out to policymakers, change makers, right? People who are working in the field. Um, at 15, I just emailed everyone I could. I got like two responses 
and one of them was a state legislator. And so that kind of really took off the ball in terms of policy. But I mean, it was super hard being young, working, and it still is now, like working with adults in a field that is very serious in a sense. Like I, the, the hard thing about mental health is like, I want to be part of the conversation, but it's such a hard conversation to have, especially when you're young and you're still kind of understanding what all these terms are. And so I think that was one of the biggest things for me. It was like, I was, I threw myself into this field of like, you know, we're talking about suicide. We're talking about, you know, stress, depression, anxiety. We're talking about mindset. And I, I was 15. I barely understood my own emotions. Now I'm in this field where I'm talking about other people's emotions. And I'm like, I am not qualified for this. But I think it was a lot of like internal conflict of like, what am I supposed to do? But I, my brother, when I was eight years old, attempted suicide. He just kind of grew up with chronic depression and just didn't get the right help for it. And so in my experience, as bad as that situation was, I grew up with my brother's recovery. And that I think was a blessing, you know, underneath the curse was that I was able to grow up you know, with his recovery, my family learning about why mental health is important and why these conversations are important. So when I got to high school, I felt a little bit more equipped because of what my brother experienced. And, you know, he's great and happy now. And so I feel like it was this like, this, I felt like a calling in a sense that, you know, I saw this happen to my older brother. I saw how it, what it, how it affects me. I saw how it affected my family and just the things that I do in my daily life. Like I felt like I was able to have a strong voice in this. And so I definitely carry that through. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot of like kind of self-reflection and it's constant self-reflection in this work, but it's super hard because like then you have adults that are like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, you know what? That's the point. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I should know what I'm talking about. And it's kind of like using their dialogue as, uh, you know what, you're, you, every point that you're making about why kids shouldn't be in, in the field is uh, is the point why kids should be because or the point of what they're advocating for, because the lack of mental health education was the reason why they were saying I shouldn't be in the field. But I mean, hey, whose fault is that? So, but yeah, I think that's that was probably my, one of my biggest challenges. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I think that's so interesting that you were able to turn some of the school board and, and the other officials, that you were able to turn some of their dialogue back on them and say, no, I don't know about these issues, but I definitely should know about them. I think young people are supposed to take a back seat when it comes to mental health legislation and solutions, but it's often young people that are struggling the most and also want to help. So I would also love to know some about what you've found through your conversations about mental health. How do different countries approach mental health differently? Tell me some about those takeaways from your research so far. Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways is that um, it, it's it's super, it doesn't matter what country or culture you go to. Mental health is, is always prominent. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is the language difference between different cultures and different countries, right? Because everyone has different languages when you go to a place. So someone else's language might have words for experiences that we don't even know how to they talk about yet. And you see, you see a lot of this like confusion when it comes down to translation, when it becomes a global matter, because now we have a really, you know, Western viewpoint of a lot of things. And we're talking about, you know, medicine that still isn't necessarily socially accepted in other countries. And so there's a lot of times, especially in like Southeast Asia, where I'm like talking to these people, but they, the support that they feel like they need the most isn't necessarily just in Western medicine. It's in the practices in their culture that make them feel safe. And so that's the big thing is when we talk about mental health in a global perspective is that we can't necessarily think what works in the United States is going to work perfectly in India or perfectly in Switzerland. These are different needs of different people and that's okay. But I think having this global conversation has been super important because the number one thing that I've been able to take away from all my research is that mental health 
is a conversation and has been a conversation in every single culture and every single country. And that's the biggest takeaway. Cause a lot of people say that, you know, we don't talk about mental health in some certain areas, but at the same time, I feel like, I feel like most people do talk about mental health. They just talk about it differently. When I did um, an interview in Japan, it's a very spiritual, spiritual like uh, practice that the people feel. It's like a very, you know, self and like mindset type thing. So when we say mental health in Japan, they talk about it more of a spiritual matter, but it means the same thing when we go to, you know, the United States. So I think that's been one of the biggest takeaways is that people talk about it and define it differently um, based on their culture, based on their individuality. And we see that even, of course, in the United States, it gets so, so broad um, that you see people talk about it differently from just their own backgrounds. I think another thing that I took away is the whole healthcare policy side of it is that you have not only just different, like, you know, kind of cultural definitions, you have a different political definitions, different political wants and viewpoints. I think one of the coolest conversations I've ever had was someone from Kenya. And they were talking about how now Kenya is a developing city. They're like a base country. They're in like in the format of developing into like a really successful country. And so now they're looking at the failures of countries like the United States, like looking at the places where the United States failed in developing their political system. So when they're talking about healthcare and policy in developing their cities right now in Kenya, they're adding mental health before mental health becomes a bigger problem. So they, and when they talk about public health and they talk about like physical health, they also are talking about mental health. So you see this country that is, you know, really developing, but they're including conversations that we'd failed to conclude a long time ago. So I think that's been one of the also cool things you see that in the policy side. And then you see countries like uh, Switzerland or Sweden that are doing really well, supposedly in mental health, but and policy might be really good, but the lack of conversation around it still is what weighing them down. So it's kind of like this flip-flop pattern of kind of like a country succeeding in this aspect, but they're failing in this in this aspect, and the failure is really hard on the people. So I think that's that was a long, like long summary of it, but I think those specific examples are pretty interesting that I've seen so far. That's really interesting, and I think the language point is something that I certainly wouldn't have thought about, and also the idea that mental health may be more spiritual in some countries and cultures, while I think it's treated as more medical in the U.S., so that's definitely an important difference, and I'm glad you talked about that. Along those lines, something that I know that can be really frustrating for young people, especially mental health advocates, is the reluctance of older generations to talk about and address mental health. Have you found that hesitancy and reservation to be common in other cultures as well? Or is it more of an American issue or maybe a developed country issue? Tell me some about your thoughts on that. I think it's a, it's a yes and no. It's actually really interesting because you go to um, a lot of developing countries. It's not just the issue of like talking about mental health. A lot of it is like, okay, what's the next step? So now we're talking about it. What do we do? Do we turn to medicine? Do we turn to like, you know, belief and religious values? I think that's the biggest conflict that you see in the generational differences between a lot of these countries right now is that it's not just the conversation is hard itself. It's just the, what do we do next? In the United States, when you struggle with anxiety, or depression, people are able to give you medical attention and that's just our solution. But with the younger generation, with the access of technology are seeing the Western kind of Western viewpoint. And so now they're trying to advocate, you know, for this Westernized medicine that doesn't necessarily always work for the older generation of these countries. So it's kind of just like this next, what do we do next question? And it's very flipped because you see a lot of people saying, okay, I, I, you see a lot of people in older generations that are just like, you know, mental health is, you know, it's sure it, okay, it's important. 
but I don't want to do a lot of these. I don't want to take all these medications. I don't want to put in, you know, these things. I want to go turn to my faith. I want to go turn to my spirituality. I want to go turn to whatever. And so you see a lot of that kind of indifference, especially in kind of like developing countries in like in the Middle East. But then you also see um also like in Europe, even with like, you know, countries within like the European um, side is that it's still that generational difference um, of, you know, mental health. It matters, but like there's so many things that matter above it. So why, we don't need to talk about it. And it's kind of like, okay, these kids are talking about mental health, but why can't they like kind of suck it up and like, you know, do what we've done. I think the biggest thing that I take taken away between generational differences is that the reason why it's super hard for people of the older generation to talk about mental health is because they've been suppressing their mental health for the past, right, 60, 50, 80 years. So if the conversation as 19 year olds, 16 year olds, 20 year olds is hard to have about mental health, imagine how hard it is for your parents and grandparents who've been suppressing it for much longer. And I think that was kind of like a mindset, like mindset shift that I had to understand is that while we are asking them to pay attention to our mental health, they have ignored it their entire lives. And because of that, you know, ignoring, ignoring their own mental health, it's going to be difficult because how are they supposed to help you when they've never ever spend a second trying to help themselves. So it's kind of like backwards because like we need to progress, but we also kind of need to go backwards and help the people who've been here at the same time too. So it's like, it's kind of difficult, but I think that there's a lot of understanding in that part is that it's hard for a lot of people from the older generation to talk about mental health because they feel so like they are not comfortable talking about it. If we're not comfortable talking about it, of course, the people who've been here longer than us are going to be pretty uncomfortable as well. So there is a lot of generational backlash, but I think it's in a sense, it's understood. Um, but I think things are definitely progressing. I'm really glad to hear that you think things are progressing. And I also really, I, I think it's great that you brought up that point about older generations suppressing their mental health, because I think you're completely right. And it's one of the things that makes it more difficult to have important conversations because of that cycle that they've experienced and that they've been stuck in. So thank you for sharing that. I would love to know what is the best advice that you've ever gotten from someone else? Are there any words of wisdom that have really stuck with you? Does anything like that come to mind for you? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely have a few. Um, uh, my older brother, as I mentioned, he's my, my biggest inspiration. And there's something that he told me when I was really, really young and I was starting all this work. And he says, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do today or what you do tomorrow. What matters is that you're always going to be doing like the next best thing. And I think that was the most, I think it was really grounding because for a while I really thought the next best thing was to, is just, you know, in the field of my work, right? What, what's the next best thing I can do for people? But, you know, after a while I was like, as a mental health advocate, you also need to take care of your own mental health. And, you know, you do these things if you're a college student. So sometimes the next best thing is like sitting down and taking a second and breathing and be like, okay, like what is the next best thing? You know, my brother, he clarified to me like, you know, a, a year later saying, you know, the next best thing isn't charging into it. It's about thinking, it's being smart, it's about being strategic. And I had my, my brother's married. And so my sister-in-law's dad uh, told me something once when I was applying to college, I did terrible in high school as an FYI, like 2.6 GPA, 10, 10 SAT score, like absolutely terrible because I was so focused on this other stuff, but he said, you know, never underestimate what you can give to people. And so he's a business guy. So what he said is like, never leave any money on the table. Like you want to like, you know, you want to throw yourself out there and like, don't hesitate to like see yourself as kind of a, more worthy than what you can think of. And I think that's been really good for me too. But yeah, there's, there's something that I always believe in though. I think um, like I, I also mentioned like on my own kind of just like words of wisdom is like genuineness is the number one thing that carries people. 
Um, and listening is what genuineness, I feel like is, is really what it is because if we don't listen with the genuine intent to hear another person then nothing's ever going to move forward. So I think there's a, there's another thing that my brother told me is that every single time that you come into a conversation, don't come into a conversation, trying to teach, come into a conversation, trying to learn. And I think those are definitely like, that's just like the motto of my, my research initiative now is that we are here to listen. We're not here to help. And I think that narrative is both important in the field, but also important in your everyday life is that, you know, you want to be a listener. You want to be the best person you can be for yourself. Like listen to yourself, listen to your friends, like listen to the people around you. So I think those are definitely the three pieces of wisdom that I I feel like I've carried with me this entire time. I love that last piece that you mentioned about being there to listen rather than to help. And I think that's so important. And it's definitely something that I've been trying to do through this podcast. So thank you for sharing that. I totally agree. And you talked some about how being a mental health advocate, it's so important for you to focus on your own mental health and take care of yourself. Can you share some of your outlets for self-care? What do you do when you need to prioritize yourself? Uh, what do you do when you need some time to just take care of you? I, honestly, dude, good question. I, I think I'm still like, I'm still learning it. I think whether or not you're an activist or, you know, you're doing whatever you want to do in life, like the whole question of how do you take care of yourself is, I think is going to be one of those questions that are just, you know, it's endless. Um, and I still struggle with it. And the more times I move around for college or I go around for events, like I, I constantly lose that aspect. But I think one of the things that I do for myself that has been really grounding is I always give myself at least like an hour, whether it be an hour at night or an hour in the morning, I want to just give myself an hour to just decompress. For me, I, I have to wake up early, just classes, you know what I mean? So it's like, I, I wake up like early and I give myself an hour. It's not like I necessarily have like this strict routine. Like I don't get up at like, like 6am and I, I go on a run. Like I don't do this. I mean, like sometimes I do, but like, it's, I think it's the nice thing is giving myself the ability to have freedom and free time, but I'm not like always stuck to a schedule. And I also say like, don't underestimate the powers of like, of your friends around you. I have some really good friends both here on campus and back home that are just so grounding. And they remind me that like, you know, take a second for yourself because you can't help anyone truly, if you can't even spend a second to give to yourself, I say, so I think one of the biggest things again, is like taking it in, like taking a second of time. Like I make a cup of co- coffee every morning. And like, that's like the best thing in the world. I'm just like, yeah, this is like the most relaxing thing of the day. And you know what, that, that's okay. So I think that's one of the things I definitely do. I think it's definitely important. Just like reflection. Um, one of my roommates, she journals and she got me into it the past like week. And I think, I think it's been really good too. So I think finding the small things in life that give you, you know, bliss, joy, and happiness is like, even if it's momentary, like it's a moment, I think it's still super important. And for me, that's an hour in the morning or an hour at night where I'm just able to like not be on a schedule and just like breathe. I think that's super important. I love that advice. And I think people can really make it a goal to just take an hour. Like you said, that's really all it takes just an hour in the morning or an hour at night to really focus on themselves. I love that advice. So I have one last question for you. Lots of young people, particularly college students, want to create change and they want to make a difference in the world, but they may not know where to get started. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom for those people who may be struggling to get started? Yeah, there's something that I realized a long time ago is that I always thought like I had to go find my voice. Like I had to go find where my voice was fitting. I had to go find where my voice was like good to be. Like a lot of people say like, you know, like go, go get up, find your voice and use it. I think the number one thing for me has also been 
no, I got it. You don't need to go find your voice. Your voice has been with you. Like your voice is you, right? So you don't need to go up and do anything more or extra to go find something to do. And you're enough to the point your voice is enough, right? And I think that's been a huge thing for me because when I was 15, I, I didn't know what to do, but all I knew was I wasn't happy with what was going on. And so I just did the next best thing. And I just used what I did have. I may have had no background. I may have no knowledge, but I did have my voice. I had my opinions. I had my thoughts and I executed that. So I would say one of my biggest like, advice would just be no, like, yes, sure. Like go find your voice, but your voice has always been with you. You just need to realize that and carry it and like love it. And then that has an effect on people. And then two, never like underestimate just the ability to just honestly use Google and reach out to people. I think it's, I found all my senators and legislators emails online when I started and I emailed every single one only to get like one response. But I mean, Hey, I think one of the biggest things is just, you know, taking the time and just being like, you know what, if I care about this, let me realize like my voice is enough and I'm able to do what I need to do. I think conversations are definitely the vessel um, in progressing things forward that, you know, again, you don't come into the conversation to learn. You go, I mean, you don't come into the conversation to teach, you come into it to learn, but you also have the voice to help others too. So I think it's realizing what you already have, realizing that there's nothing you need to do more than just speak and share and just hear other people as well. So I think that's definitely been the vessel of everything I've done. I was really inspired by my conversation with Sika, and I found a lot of her insights to be really unique. I want to focus on one of those pieces of advice she shared, which was to do the next best thing. I think that advice can be applied in a lot of different aspects of life, whether it's doing the next best thing to take care of yourself, doing the next best thing in activism, maybe doing the next best thing for your career. I also thought this advice was great because it's not about putting pressure on yourself to compare yourself to others or to strive to be the best at everything. That's not the point of this advice. Instead, it just means that you should be doing the next best thing for you. And that means something different for everyone. It's easier said than done, but focus on what's best for you as well as for others because change comes when you do the next best thing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and you can follow Sika on Instagram at Sika Brown to get connected with her. And you can check out her website, which is linked in the description of this episode. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.